Good evening and welcome to HealthBeat. I'm your host, Greg Caponia. HealthBeat's a program that investigates the social determinants of health with our good friends and partners, Ronald Dentis and Edward Meehan from the Leonard Parker Pool Institute of Health. Welcome, gentlemen. Good evening, Greg. Good evening, Greg. Tonight, we're going to begin our discussion with the importance of place-based work. On previous episodes of HealthBeat, we've discussed social determinants of health, housing, education, food, and community connectivity as individual drivers of health in the Lehigh Valley. You and our guests have helped us better understand how these individual factors influence our health and well-being. And now we know that they're all interrelated and all influence each other. So we thank you, gentlemen, for keeping abreast of what we currently know in doing this show. Ed, addressing one of these issues can really be complicated, and they're all connected and all critical to health improvement. So how do we separate all this gumbo? How do we address all these problems together? Exactly, Greg. You've hit the nail right on the head. These are very complex things that are challenging to uh, every component of how we think about human services, education, housing, etc. So it's really important to be careful about how you think uh, about where and how you can drive innovation. So I just want to mention, um, we had, uh, along with uh, Jim Martin from the Lehigh County District Attorney's Office, uh, Reverend Becca Stevens here a couple of weeks ago to talk about her work in uh, Nashville with Thistle Farms. And she made a statement that just stuck with me, and and I just want to say it in context of how we think about this work. The quote was, community is the oldest entity we have for healing. Community is the oldest entity we have for Mm. healing. And I just want to point that out because as I describe how do we get at these complex issues, I think we come back to that very, very true statement that hits me very deeply. So how are you going to go about this? Just think about the various levels that we could approach. First of all, if you think about it from a systems perspective, it's really big. It's really complicated. We have systems that are long in place, long designed, uh, deeply entrenched in their policies, procedures. And anybody who's listening this evening who's worked for a large organization knows it's hard to get two departments in a company or an organization to work together, much less work with other systems. So that's probably not a good place to go. You take it down a level and say, well, what about working with not-for-profit agencies uh, and see if they can drive this innovation to think about uh, how you do this uh, place-based work? Well, they're usually extremely busy. They're always extremely busy uh, with day-to-day operations. Very hard to have the freedom to be able to think creatively and innovatively when you're providing services on a day-to-day basis. Uh, And oftentimes, many of the not-for-profits are bound by uh, regulatory requirements and or funding prescriptions about what they can and cannot do. So that makes it hard for them. So then think about the individual, just for a family, for example. Let's take a family who's uh, completely hypothetical. I'm not picking on any one kind of family. But let's just say there's a child in the family with asthma that is missing school because of the asthma. We know that uh, the asthma is triggered by mold in the home. We know the mold in the home is due to the precarious and poor housing conditions of the family, which is driven to a great degree by their income level, which is determined to a great degree by their ability to access employment, which is at risk because of the fact that somebody in the household has to take a lot of time off from work to get the asthmatic child out of school and into the emergency room or into seeing a primary care physician. 
So at the level of the family, this is not that complex. We, families are not siloed. Uh, individuals in their thinking about uh, housing and education and, and health aren't siloed at all. It's, it's integral to how they have to think about how they conduct their, their lives. So if it's not systems and it's not agencies and it can't be on the individual family level without thinking about it just being helping individual families, we are left with Reverend Stevens' quote, community is the oldest entity we have for healing. And so place is extremely important. Uh, it's, first of all, uh, the way that we can get feedback and accurate and correct information from people who live in the community who experience these problems firsthand and who have the ability to articulate what it is that's going on in their lives in ways that we can't if we don't live there and, and we don't have that knowledge at the very deep community level. Secondly, if you do it on a place-based perspective, you can think about disaggregating data. And we've talked a bit about this on the show before, where if you look at Northampton County, countywide, you really don't see that there are that many problems. Things are look not too bad, pretty good. It's not till you get down to disaggregating to a neighborhood level, to a census tract level, where you really say, okay, there are significant blighted housing challenges, educational challenges, job challenges, etc., uh, that wash out if you look at the big picture, but on a place-based level, you really see that this is something that's important and, and needs to be done. So I think we're left with, with the options of how you would think about approaching this to say, doing it uh, and piloting and testing and prototyping work, getting the authentic voice of the community and thinking about disaggregating data across uh, sectors in a place-based way is probably the best way to go about it. Ron, Edward is using a term, place-based work. Can you define that more? Uh, yeah, it's, it's how do you take a look at a specific neighborhood? Anytime you try and tackle these problems, so, you know, if you start picking on housing or education uh, and you try and do it across a large geographic area, say Lehigh Valley, uh, you can never get your arms around it. It means too many different things in too many different areas. You try and narrow that down to a county, still too broad, to a city, still too broad. If you really want to find ways of bringing partners together, of having voice of community, of really understanding the issues at hand, you have to take it down to its least common denominator. And oftentimes that is a neighborhood, a census tract, a small geographic area where you can really understand the problems and the assets uh, as compared to a, a much larger geographic area. Ed, the quote that you that you just made, can you give us an example of how what was still is or how these things kind of come around? I think, it, you know, this may sound really trite, but there's nothing like a good blizzard or a blackout or something that happens in a neighborhood. You have folks come out and say, oh my, yeah, let's, I'll help you dig your car out, uh, you know, and then... I might not talk to you all year long, right? <laughs> but, but you know, in crunch time, suddenly people pop their heads out and realize, wow, I can't do this by myself. I think people are social animals. They understand uh, at a very deep level that even if you feel, uh, you know, like you're not much of a, of a socialite, people have their social connections in their networks. And I think that's something that is an asset. It's a strength. It's something that when we talk about problem solving, when we talk about challenges to housing or health, we forget. We turn those things into 
more transactional kind of provision of things to people as opposed to uh, the ability to think about what and how do folks want to lead um, their lives and improve the better quality of their lives. So I think that uh, we have bureaucratized and standardized and homogenized so many things that we're losing a lot of richness in the fact that communities are not, they don't happen by accident. They're, they're, they're by design. Folks, uh, folks choose to live in community because it works for them. If it didn't work, they wouldn't do it. And so uh, it might sound, again, uh, a little unscientific, but I'm a big fan of the idea that we use all the empirical science and rigor that we know combined with uh, the wisdom of community. Ron, can you give us an example of multiple drivers that address place-based work? Yeah, there's there's a really great one that we're involved with right now. Everybody talks about precarious housing, about the housing shortage, about the rising costs of housing. Uh, and again, nowhere is that more prevalent than in our poorer communities. So one of the things we wanted to do was to start digging into understanding precarious housing and how it influences education and how it influences health. And you know, this is a play right out of the Leonard Poole playbook of, hey, who in the country does this work the best? And we're really fortunate to develop a terrific working relationship with an organization out of Washington, D.C. called Enterprise Community Partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, these folks have been doing housing for over 40 years, and they've expanded their model into not only doing the community development component of it, how do you create uh, affordable, safe, healthy housing for folks, uh, but also the capital side of it. How do we start you know, owning and managing properties? And now this new side of consultation, they are so good at this that a lot of national funders are saying, hey, can you figure out how to get that that model into other communities? And uh, because of the work that we're doing here in the Lehigh Valley, uh, we were one of the first communities that they selected to work with. So we've been taking our cross-sector partnership through our pool fellowship, where we have trusted relationships between folks in housing and education and health and human services, and applying that to the enterprise model. They've been coming up here and providing us some technical assistance of how you can use the idea of housing as the framework for getting at health, public safety, uh, et cetera. Enterprise Community Partners has been doing this for a while, haven't they? Uh, yes, 40 yes, years. They have, uh, and they're, they're really good at it. So I was doing some research on the organization, and uh, I see the figure of $44 billion invested into the communities. Where does this, I mean, this is a lot of money and and put to good. Uh, Where does it come from? Enterprise Community Partners has worked with more than 800 communities across the country. And uh, they're they're known as a very uh, reputable and credible organization that that understands housing well and does this work. And they get funding from multiple philanthropic sources and foundations. The Bomber Group in particular uh, has been very supportive of their work on housing and thinking about how to provide the technical assistance and consultation. So they they are known as a credible entity that provides common sense and good understanding of how to address housing issues at a neighborhood level. And that kind of recognition begets support in the Bomber Group in particular. So uh, I also have to say just my compliments to my colleague and friend, Ron, because 
you know, head down doing the work in Allentown and to the extent that, you know, others start to take notice. So when Enterprise Community Partners reaches out to us, it's fantastic because the work in the Lehigh Valley is being recognized as in the vanguard of communities that are doing this work. So my compliments to Ron and also just compliments to the Lehigh Valley because uh, attracting that kind of attention is only going to mean more good things to come. So, Ron, what what do you know about the findings? The first thing is um, making the distinction between the important work that a lot of folks in the Lehigh Valley are doing around providing shelter for um, the homeless and the precariously housed. This is really critical work. The warming stations, you know, the six-month transitional housing programs, really, really critical work of providing shelter for folks in need. What we want to get at here is permanent housing and the the enterprise model, uh, which is being replicated by a terrific not-for-profit in the Lehigh Valley called Ripple Community, is really kind of taking uh, an approach of, hey, we want to provide folks safe, healthy housing for as long as they want to stay there instead of the, okay, you can stay here for a week or you can stay here for a month. You know, the, the amount of work that needs to go into stabilizing a neighborhood isn't going to happen if we're transitioning people in and out on a short basis. So if we want to stabilize community and stabilize housing, we've got to look at longer-term permanent solutions. And again, we're not talking about handouts and free housing for folks. We're talking about housing that they can afford that will allow them to build the assets and wealth that so many uh, middle-class families have depended on over the years. How many of us, you know, had our first starter home that we bought, you know, relatively inexpensive, and that was our ability to start building the wealth that allowed us financial security as we, you know, worked through our our middle-class status. Yeah, you really need a piece of the rock to to kind of auger in, if you will, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so many of us, We're fortunate to have that or, you know, you get, I don't want to call it generational wealth, but at least a little bit of a foundation. You know, somebody can pass on maybe 10000 or $20,000 or so, but sometimes people just need the opportunity to get started. Can you talk about some specific recommendations that might have been made? Yeah, they, they, again, this framework really helped our partners wrap the brains around the fact that uh, if we're looking at housing and how housing impacts health and how housing impacts education. Uh, And you start looking at defining precarious housing in five ways. Uh, One would be uh, housing stability. How, you know, are people transitioning in and out of housing and moving from neighborhood to neighborhood, which can be really disruptive to kids in school when they're changing schools four or five times a, uh, a year. Second is affordability. Uh, housing affordability? Are people spending 50% of their income, of their uh, revenue on housing expenses? Third is, you know, I, I mentioned a little earlier about being using housing as a way of building assets and wealth. Uh-huh. Um, fourth is the idea of housing quality. Is, is the housing solid? Is it safe? Uh, is there, you know, is there radon? Is there lead paint? Is there mold? Is there hot water? Uh, you know, are people living in, in housing that is safe and healthy? And then finally, neighborhood context. Is it an, in a neighborhood where everybody has the opportunity to thrive? And so when you start using that framework around measuring and evaluating the housing of a particular place, you can get a much better handle on the housing needs of that particular neighborhood. 
Ron, when you look at your experience with the Pool Institute for Health and then combine it with the information that you're picking up from um, newer enterprises, is, is there anything that surprises you? Anything that's, wow, I didn't expect this. Uh, you know, there have been no surprises, but I, I love two things. One is the rigor of this process, and two is that there is no recipe, there's no cookie-cutter approach to this work. It's an evolving approach to doing this work. So you, you can really kind of look at it as, here's what we know now. What do we need to do to understand this better? And is that voice of community, is that better data, better quantitative data that describes the neighborhood? Is it getting the perspectives of uh, legal aid and uh, city government and education? How do you pull all this stuff together and learn together on how we move forward on this instead of the approach of, okay, we have the answers. We just need to do A, B, C, and D. Hey, Greg, I, I also I'd like to comment sure. on your question about surprises. Um, first of all, big picture, it provides us a lot of validation and a lot of you know just sort of affirmation that the kinds of things we're talking about in the Lehigh Valley in terms of long-term uh, improvements in social determinants of health are correct, that we're on, very much on the right track. So that's it, it's not a surprise, but it's, it's a pleasant just validation. Hey, folks who do this and do it well across the country are saying we're on the right path. So that's terrific. The not a surprise, but maybe a mild kind of like, oh, wow, thought for me is some of the implications of this take us down a policy path that I thought would be a long ways off. Uh, you know, Ron and I are not necessarily policy change folks. We're thinking about doing this place-based work at a neighborhood level, uh, engaging a community, authentic involvement of people in things that affect their lives with real good thinking about hard data to back that up. And then how do we do the coalition building, if you will, to kind of do the correct problem solving and, and do that well over a long period of time. I'm really surprised at how quickly that turns into, okay, well, we've got to loop back with our housing buddies and we've got to loop back with City Hall and we've got to loop back with the school district. Not that we wouldn't. It just, for me, provides more clarity on the fact that while many folks are saying, look, you have to work Lehigh Valley-wide or we have to be regional to really make a dent and move the needle, fact of the matter is if you start smartly with just a place, uh, a neighborhood, and then kind of extrapolate out what needs to get done, you start engaging in conversations with lots of folks very quickly. So when you look at a, an area like Franklin Park, where there's limited housing supply, and uh, it's estimated 78% of the residents are renters, is it policy that allows our friends there to get a piece of the rock, or how do we, how do we make this transition? Hey, I'm the one who brought up policy. I wouldn't say it's policy that gets us there. It's the fact that some of the things that are being identified, the solution to those things are not found within the community itself. And so then how do you start to build out, okay, among pool fellows, what agencies can be helpful? How can we think about building the capacity to do this problem solving, whether it be housing or uh, improved health? And so I'm not jumping to policy as a solution, but jumping to not jumping to, but but the deliberation of, okay, how do we solve some of these things? And how far up the, 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 the uh, decision tree do we have to go in various uh, segments of service delivery? Uh, and if that takes us toward policy work, okay, so be it. But I think we stick to the fidelity of saying, 
place is important. What we're trying to do is do everything to the uh, understanding and appreciation that folks who live there say, yes, this is what we want, combined with the hard data, and then take it wherever it leads us. And if it leads us into policy work, okay. Ron, there's a lot of good things being done by the Pool Institute for Health. Can you give us an example of where one of the fellows might have worked with some of the enterprise report data and uh, created a positive outcome for some of our at-risk communities? Yeah, this is this is very early stage work, um, but I think the the biggest thing to celebrate here is the and work, the A N D work. Historically, we've approached this work as well. We'll you know we'll work on education, but if we're not working on education with housing, then we have the transitional families, we have the kids who uh, you know overcrowded houses where kids don't have the ability to have dedicated space and light to study, etc. So. The special uh, work that's going on now is you've got our partners at uh, North Penn Legal Services looking at the legal uh, landlord-tenant issues that need to be addressed. This is this neighborhood has the highest rate of eviction filings in um, the Lehigh Valley. How are we getting at you know the root causes of some of this? So the fact that there's legal aid working with the magistrates and working with the landlords and tenants on addressing some of this work. At the same time, our our early childhood education folks are working on making sure that every single kid has access to quality pre-K and is ready for kindergarten when they have an opportunity to learn, Uh, that we're working with City Hall to make sure that houses are as healthy uh, and safe as possible, and doing that in a way where we're not getting people evicted from apartments that might not be up to code, but are, are better than being homeless. How do you how do you address some of these issues without kicking people out to the streets? So trying to find sensitive, supportive ways of doing this work amongst a a group of trusted colleagues is is really kind of our way of moving this forward. Ron, what would you like our audience to focus in on? There's policy. There's also activities, perhaps, that they can participate in to help move the needle forward in a positive direction. Can you give us, or Ed, I toss it out to both of you, is there something that our audience can do to aid in this process? I can take a shot at that. Uh, there, there are numerous things. One is, the, big, the most important one is be patient. This is uh, long-term work. Uh, We're not going to create stable communities with upward uh, economic mobility overnight. This is generational work. So number one is we need to stay patient. Number two, continue to support the folks that are doing the the in-the-trenches work around uh, housing, education, health, et cetera. Three is remain educated. And, you know, your listeners that are paying attention to the show, it's a great way of staying abreast on, on what the issues are. And then four, you know, there are always volunteer opportunities to, you know, get in and, and get your hands dirty. Habitat for Humanity is a fabulous program that, that works on some of these uh, housing issues. There are mentoring opportunities. You know, if we all kind of pitch in a little bit here and have a direction and have a trusted way of moving forward, uh, we're going to start seeing those small gains that we can continue to build off of. The Enterprise Report that we've been referencing, is there a place where people can look at this information or be introduced to some of the findings? 
Yeah, uh, Greg, I was going to say that we're we're still in discussion. We're still trying to understand it and interpret it properly. We will be able to share findings uh, in a few weeks, I think, in terms of rolling out kind of the the overall points. But I think to a great degree, Ron's kind of highlighted the key ones about what are the what are the overall themes about housing uh, and how to think about it in context of safe and healthy neighborhoods. Also, if I may, just for five seconds, sure. in answer to your question uh, that you asked Ron, I think the other thing that the listeners need to realize is that, as Ron said, you have to be patient. We we tend to be impatient with human services and education that we should somehow wave a magic wand and things will be better. It took a long time for these conditions to develop, and it's going to take a long time to dig out of them. It's generational. It really is. So we have to stick with it. And if everyone would understand that tremendous work is being done, great gains can be made, but the, the work is the work, and, it, and uh, you can't make it go faster. And great gains have been made. Uh, we do this program so that we can focus on what's at hand immediately, but, uh, of course, uh, you know, compliments to the Leonard Parker Pool Institute for Health um, and the foundation, the Parker Pool Foundation in the past for uh, doing some, uh, you know, for moving us forward. There are great advances that have been made. Well, gentlemen, once again, a very interesting HealthBeat program provided by our friends here at the Leonard Parker Pool Institute of Health, and uh, along with Edward Meehan and Ronald Dendis. Uh, I'd like to say thank you, gentlemen, for a very interesting uh, look into these issues. Thank you so much, Greg. A great conversation. Much appreciated. I'm Greg Caponia, your host. And thank you for listening to WDIY 88.1 FM and HealthBeat. Have a great evening.